Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Yevgenia Baras is a painter and a co-founder of the Regina Rex Gallery in Bushwick. She received a BS in Fine Arts and Psychology and MS in Education from the University of Pennsylvania in 2003. She received her MFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago in 2007 and is now represented by Nikhil Boshen Gallery. She received the Artadia Prize and was selected for the Sharp Walenta Studio Program and the McDowell Colony Residency in 2015. In 2014, she was named the recipient of the Rima Hort Mann Foundation's Emerging Artist Prize. Her work has been reviewed in the New York Times and Art in America. I visited Yevgenia's studio in Bushwick, and we talked about her life in art from her youth in Russia to her current day work, painting, teaching, and curating in Brooklyn. Here's our conversation. teacher was really great she was amazing everyone's like you got to take French she's the best teacher mm-hmm. not because I actually wanted to speak French and I heard that she would bring baguettes and Nutella to class yeah <laughs> which was enticing <laughs> and uh, but I never use it and um, I took it for like I think six seven years or something but um, and now when I go to Paris I feel like I should be able to speak and I feel like I could speak a little but I'm so self-conscious that I don't want to say anything because I think in Paris they they want you to either speak it really well or maybe not. Maybe not. I at think all. you might be right. There yeah. are places that encourage your tries. Yeah. And yeah. there are places that are like, please don't, don't attempt. Yeah. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah. Don't butcher our language. Just stick to yours. Um, like I think Italians always enjoy it when you try. Yeah. They're they're excited by that. But Yeah. When yeah. I go to Japan people are really love it when you try well they I always feel like they kind of smile and laugh a little bit when you try to order and speak in Japanese because you're like you speak Japanese not really I mean enough to get by okay so wow like I can order food and you know ask direct directions and things like that but oh, I want to be ordering food in Japan in Japanese it's so right, right now right it's <laughs> I know well, I was there over Thanksgiving for two weeks and I didn't want to come back and it was right during the post election period so going to the other side of the world for a couple of weeks was a nice break from all the noise that was going on and a place that just knows how to do everything beautifully from have you dis- been yes yeah isn't it great from display your like two pieces of sushi on a beautifully minimal plate to yeah. like the way clothes is cut to the, the, rules. the wrapping, the wrapping of like your food that you buy in the train station or something—it's just so. They're so tuned into the aesthetic that like. I know it's nice. Yeah, it's very nice. It's always hard to come back, from being there for a while and coming back to you know JFK. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, you know, diving back into the deep end of the New York pool. I think it's really, I, I think coming back from really exotic places or places that are not like your own context yeah. to JFK is very funny. 
It is. Like, if you come back by yourself and you get into the cab and, like, you've just, I don't know, like, I was just in Buenos Aires two mm -hmm. weeks ago, you know, and then you land, like, really early in the morning and you're taking a cab with someone, you're, like, packed with, oh. like, visions and smells of this other place. Yeah. And then you have some, like really basic New York conversation with your cab driver <laughs> and they don't know what you've seen right, you know right. and you're like this like package of goodness charged about, uh, charged trip, yeah. yes and they're just like you know I'm just back here driving on the BQE <laughs> what's the big deal <laughs> Or yeah. like you have to guide them back through Bushwick. And you, you, you feel like you maybe forgot the route. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get that when you come back? Or were you like, oh, I, I always get this feeling, like when I go to Hawaii especially, Hawaii is one of my favorite places in the world. And mm. it's so nice and relaxing there. And when you come back to New York, it's such a different vibe. Because the vibe there is totally peaceful, laid back. Everything's going to be fine. Take it easy. Then you come back and it's just, you know, chaos immediately. And I'm, I always think to myself, why don't I just move to Hawaii? You know, I, so I travel a lot and I no longer have this thing of like, I want to be there permanently wherever I went. Yeah. I really enjoy it and I sort of steal from it. Mm -hmm. But I, I can't wait to be back and be productive. Yeah. Not it's like I can't wait, but yeah, I look forward nice to returning and having my mind switched a little bit and my eyes changed a little bit. Yeah, I always make very good decisions in the studio after that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like calibrates you, but I mean, obviously, like I'm still here, so mm -hmm. I I do love everything that the city has to offer, but. I think I, I feel that way more about day-to-day, -day, like, like when you get in a cab and you're like, I got to deal with this now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> the, I mean, the there demeanor are... and the litter everywhere and like all that kind of stuff, the little things that you don't notice when you're here on the second week, but like you come back, like when I come back from Japan where you cannot find one piece of litter in the entire country and you come back to Bushwick and it's like, it's nasty. I mean, it's, there's more litter than there is sidewalk sometimes. Yes. You're like hopping over piles of who knows what yeah. all day. Paying a fortune for it. Too. Yes. <laughs> but then notice anywhere you go in the world, if you just open your mouth and say that you're from New York, it's amazing. Yeah. It's like an entrance point into really good conversations like everyone is right away excited to yeah. talk to you so you in your heart know you're coming from a magical place and sometimes i don't know you're in spain and you're in it or you're in italy you're like oh you guys know how to sit and have coffee and you're taking your time and da da da. but you know in your heart of hearts that you're addicted to yeah. the place you come from yeah, it's 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 difficult. <laughs> it's 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 hard to come to terms with it or to feel like I don't know, but there there is such amazing culture and life and you know, New York's just such an amazing place. And then in that way you start listing like they say to, you, "Oh, you're from New York." And then you start listing in your head and out loud what you have here. And you're like, "Yeah. I don't know if I need the slow coffee." Yeah. On a sidewalk. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, you you know, the museums and it's the, yeah. All the stuff you get to see. And you're never bored. You get to eat around the world. So when did you first come to New York? Um, so I have this long relationship with New York because uh, I came here in the 90s as a teenager. I had a lot of friends. 
living here. Mm -hmm. On Upper West Side and in New Jersey, across the Washington Bridge. Yeah. So I had a crowd of friends as a teenager, and we would go circa 95, 94 to St. Mark's mm -hmm. and uh, get piercings and go to punk clubs. Remember when all those kids used to hang out at the sculpture? Yeah. This is such a punk zone. So was, you were hanging out there? We were hanging out there. No one was carting at all. I remember clearly that we were so young and getting into bars. Yeah, they didn't care. To listen to music. <laughs> yeah, and no yeah. one cared. So I have this memory of the city and how it smelled and felt and walking through it. Mm -hmm. And then another kind of stage with it when I was in graduate school in Chicago but would fly to see my friends yeah. here my then my undergrad friends who already moved to New York and started their adult lives but I was still in school studying painting in Chicago so you knew a lot of people you had a lot of people who were around a lot of people were around but none of them artists so oh, okay. when I moved here post Chicago officially Mm -hmm. which was 2008, I knew one artist in New York, mm -hmm. the artist I moved with. <laughs> I moved with a very close female friend of uh -huh. mine together, post-grad school in a U-Haul. Mm -hmm. And Just we knew each other. And came, <laughs> yes. came together. So I had a solid group of uh, really good friends here who were one is a lawyer, mm -hmm. one is a literature professor, but nobody related to art. And these are people you knew from growing up? From growing up. So some from being teenagers together and some from college. I went to University of Pennsylvania and a lot of people moved to New York after that. So. Yeah. But not, yeah, none of them artists. And you went to Chicago straight after? Straight after, yeah, for okay. grad school. So I have this many waves of my life in New York. Yeah. And when someone who grew up here says, oh, it's really changed, it's not the same city, I, I understand what they mean because I have a record of it. Right, yeah, it's different. It's different. So where did you grow up? Where did I grow up? I was born in the Soviet Union, and then uh, the Soviet Union fell, then it was Russia, mm -hmm. and then I immigrated to Philly, when I was 12. When you were 12? So I grew up in Philadelphia, two different neighborhoods. First, uh, kind of immigrant neighborhood, mm -hmm. not downtown. And then at the age of 17, I started Penn and I moved to West Philly. Yeah. Well, were you, um, were you interested in art when you were growing up in Russia? Yeah. And what was that like? I mean, how, was, how were you introduced to the arts? Um, probably depends on which family you come from. Yeah. My family is a very curious family, and mm -hmm. my parents are really into uh, all kinds of culture. So we saw ballet every weekend and of theater. Course. Because it was a communist place, activities for kids were free and numerous. So, yeah. you know, you could take your child to study gymnastics, and then you take your child to learn a language, mm -hmm. and then, you know, so I, I um, my day was just packed with extracurriculars after school, and I would take 
the city I'm from, which is Samara, uh, has trolleys. Mm -hmm. So even starting the age of six, just after class, uh, I would get on a trolley and go to my variety of extracurricular activities. One of them was art. Yeah. Um, Do you have a good teacher? I had I had an amazing teacher who I'm actually still friends with. Yeah. He taught me starting the age of seven. Um, my grandfather was not a professional artist, but he really enjoyed painting. And uh, he was living in a different town. And he came and walked me by the hand to that school and registered me for class. Wow. And... Eventually, a year later, I think, I started having this teacher and he taught me until I immigrated. Mm -hmm. And it was mostly from observation. It was a kind of classical training, but... Painting and drawing? Painting and drawing. But the reason I'm saying that I'm still friends with him is because when I visit Russia now as an adult, that's Mm -hmm. who I stay with. I stay Uh, with his family. That's great. So... um, yeah, he's he's still really exciting to talk about art too. Mm-hmm. He passionate is passionate about it. Very I passionate. Imagine. I mean, he's a person who's never traveled anywhere. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's been to Turkey now in in his fifties. Yeah, uh, but that's probably maybe Turkey and Greece. But that's about it. And I doubt when I say Greece, I don't mean Athens and museums. Yeah. I mean like a resort. Right. But he knows so much about art history and he's curious from his position. Like he has books, he yeah. Googles, he's just really aware. And he's, um, like he's very rich inside. Mm-hmm. So what does he think of you, all that you've done now? He must be really. He is really, really proud of me. Yeah, that's great. Um, he, I think he's really proud of my commitment to it, too. I don't know if he, he, I haven't seen him in six years, and so I don't know what he thinks of, I mean, he comments under my work on Facebook mm-hmm. in Russian, yeah. and the comments are, like, he titles my paintings sometimes, they're all untitled, <laughs> uh-huh. but he'll title them, and they'll, it'll be a two-word title or so, but it'll always contain a universe like he's such a poet yeah you know and they're totally abstract but he'll know he'll say something like oh that's a wound or that's intergalactic travels yeah. or that's you know a, uh, that's a closed heart or like he just feels me across the universe somehow right. that's amazing and you probably well you might not have been doing what you're doing today if you didn't come across his path right because of the kind of love and softness from which he taught me. So maybe Soviet Union academic training could have been really, like, rigid. Yeah. But he he has a, I don't know, he's just a man of the universe. Like, he... He's so open. So he taught me, like, uh, he, loved, he loves me the way he loves his kids. So mm-hmm. he taught me from that love. Yeah. So there was always space to stretch. And, yeah, he's, he, I've had numerous incredible teachers. One is him and somebody in my undergrad mm-hmm. who was really amazing, who taught me most of Penn. Yeah. 
Uh, she got hired when uh, I was a sophomore. And then I took eight or ten consecutive semesters with her. Wow. <laughs> and she came to my opening this fall at yeah. Nikel Bushan. I mean, we're, we're still friends. She lives in Philly and That's teaches great. at Penn. Well, when you went to high school in Philly, what was that like for you? Especially coming over at 12, because you're pretty, you know, kind of... It's not like you're coming over when you're five or six years old and you can assimilate pretty quickly. Was it a, was it a transition, I imagine? Yeah, you can... You probably noticed that I'm skipping over high school and that's oh, for yeah. a reason. Yeah. Um, I immigrated. So I finished sixth grade in Russia and then I never went to seventh. So mm-hmm. I arrived and went straight to eighth grade. And I went to eighth grade because I, on all subject, I tested higher yeah. than a seventh grade level in US, mm-hmm. except that I didn't speak any English. So like, as far as math and Slight physics, yeah. <laughs> right? So like everything that you can do without language, mm-hmm. I could do really well, but... You had to catch up with language. But I had to catch up with language. And, um, well, we started by speaking about language, right? So like when you are four, the age my sister was, mm-hmm you pretty much speak within two or three months because you are uninhibited. Right. Um, You're not embarrassed. When you are 12, you're embarrassed about many kinds of things, Mm -hmm. but you actually understand within about eight or nine months, Uh but opening your mouth and speaking is really like, it's hard. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. But also because the two linguistic categories are so different. It's not like I'm coming from France, mm-hmm. a Latin-based language, yeah. and trying to speak English. I mean, I'm coming from a Slavic back, background language-wise and trying to read a Latin-based and speak a Latin-based language. It's like learning Japanese yeah. or Hebrew, you know, completely different linguistic category. Um, so it took a while, probably over a year, that I could speak mm-hmm. And, and then I entered high school. Um, high school was really hard, but I went to a, a nice high school that helped me. I think about it as a way to get into the college that I wanted to get into. Yeah. There is not much to say. It was just four years of major adjustment to this country and the culture of it and not being fully accepted, but gaining a lot of strength from that. Yeah. And then starting a adult life in mm-hmm. college, in the college that I wanted to be in. So you went to Penn, which is a really good school, and it's Ivy League, and it's, you know, they have... Um, What's it called? The business school there. So yeah, the Wharton, Wharton School yeah, of Business. Yeah, I've had friends who have gone there. But what was that like? Because the art, there is an art school there, but it's not big, right? It's so. First of all, I've always wanted to be in an, in an academic environment. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in being around people who are not just concerned with making art. Right. So I university like, is a great choice. Right? It's a great yeah. choice for me. Because I, I want to hear other thoughts. I actually think you make better art. 
I, when you dive into other. I, I, I never went to an art school, so I'm, I guess I'm kind of biased towards the university because there's so many other subjects. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because when you're in school, sometimes you feel like, I, I don't want to take these electives or sometimes you just want to be in your studio. Mm-hmm. But then I think when you graduate later on, you look back and you think, oh, that was really good that I had to take those classes. You know? Yeah, you really appre- and you really appreciate the ideas of people around you. Like, yeah. I knew while I was at Penn that I am amongst really interesting thinkers and I knew that even more when I left yeah you know and okay not everybody who goes to Penn is exciting or super intelligent right but generally speaking your bar is set pretty high like and it's always about curating your environment even there you're choosing who you want to be in your immediate life right who's going to have an impact on you by just talking to you and right. sharing I mean, experiences with you. Yeah. It's a huge campus. You, yeah. you, 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 can, you can totally choose. So um, I did take art classes, but I initially majored in psychology, and I finished that major before I aggressively finished my art major. So you had dual major? I dual majored and minored in Russian literature. So a BA and a BS. BA right. and is that correct? It, BA and a BS, right? Because they don't have a BFA. Right. So I, I studied statistics. I studied all kinds of psych, mm-hmm. and I took art classes. I was done with the psych major by I think the middle of my junior year, and then I could really take art classes yeah. and. Which is good, because then at that point, you really want to be in the studio and yes. kind of concentrating on that, which is good timing. And it so happened that Penn hired my favorite teacher my sophomore year. Sophomore year, right. Junior year, I was abroad for first half in London, and I returned, and there was this like great woman painter. Are you going to drop the name of this yes, person? Yes, Jackie Tileston. <laughs> okay. And she just was amazing. And taught me so much and I was just so excited that there was this human being in our department and she's an abstract painter Mm -hmm. so that is where I I made abstract work before but that is who really taught me to think to look at abstraction yeah and to appreciate it like were you were you around other abstract painters there is, and is the art department there mixed or is it separated by painting, sculpture, and, or was it just art? It was just art, I think. I mean, at this point, I think it's a lot more developed and there's... Departments. I mean, they probably would say they're interdisciplinary. I'm not sure how they frame themselves. That's the in, the in word these days. Like yes. everyone, everyone wants to be in, interdisciplinary. Um, but I just took painting and drawing. Mm-hmm. And really, at some point, I would just be in the corner painting as she was teaching because right. there were no studios until senior year. So you're just in the painting room. I was working. just in the painting room, but Jackie always permitted for me to have a corner with an easel. Like, I could actually leave my shit there. Right. Like, all day long, all week long, and come back there at night. And yeah. It was your spot. It was my spot because classes were small and, you know, people just got to know that I paint in this spot by the window. Yeah. Um, 
and then senior year, I finally had a studio. But Jackie is also the person whose studio I, it was the first proper artist studio I saw because she has a studio near the campus. Mm -hmm. And so she invited us uh, as students and said, you know, take a look at what I'm doing and how it connects. Just explain how she lives as an artist. Yeah. And I, I got my first peek into that. Was that like a light bulb moment where you thought, well, maybe I could do this in my life? Or was it not there yet? You know how everyone kind of has, at a certain point, you're like, oh, wait, you can do this for a living? Or you can make this your focus of your life? I don't know if I fully believed it then, but I, I saw it modeled at least, right? Yeah. Then I actually did a master's in education at Penn, and mm -hmm. then I worked at Penn with kids for a year. So it took another two years. But once I did that grad degree, I said, okay, I did everything practical. I have another undergrad major. I have another grad major. Now I'm applying for my MFA. I'm going to just do it. Yeah. And she was really a huge support. Yeah. And, you know, I applied to a number of schools that probably she advised me on. Like, I don't remember being on the internet, <laughs> Googling where to go. Right. You, that back then, well, it not, was, not presuming that it was too long. <laughs> back, in those ancient back times. Back in those days, <laughs> you would just go word of mouth. There was no internet. And somebody was hired, uh, Joshua Mosley, who mm -hmm. just graduated from the Art Institute and was hired full-time at the Art Institute. He's an animator, oh, at the, uh, was hired full-time at Penn, mm -hmm. and he's an animator. Mm -hmm. And Jackie said, go to his office and talk to him, find out how the Art Institute was. So like, like that, like I yeah. spoke to him, I spoke to her, I made a list of where I would apply, and only Art Institute called me for an interview. So it was like, all signs were pointing. All signs were Chicago. pointing to Chicago. <laughs> um, yeah. So, what was Chicago like? Did you enjoy it? I loved Chicago, and I loved the Art Institute, mm -hmm. and I am so grateful for that experience because that was just so much about painting. Yeah. What years was that that you were at Chicago? Two thousand four to two thousand and eight. Mm -hmm. So I stayed for four years. I did post-bac. I didn't get into grad school. I got into post-bac. Then I went to grad school for two years. And then I stayed and worked at the museum for a year. Nice. But I really worked at the museum all four years. And then mm -hmm. the last year full-time. I even remember during my grad interview, I think I said out loud to whoever was interviewing me that, you know, I will for sure try to get a part-time job there. Yeah. And then I did, like, as soon as I could because it's such a great museum it's my favorite museum in the world really so it had a big impact on you do you think as far as just you know uh, when you're yeah. around work a lot that's significant work it kind of burns into your mind you know that i mean meeting these people i've been mentioning along the way but also having so when you work at the museum you have access to it really early in the morning mm -hmm and really late at night yeah. and so like I've just walked those halls while they were dark and they have there's an amazing wooden floor in the old part of the uh -huh. museum it smells really good yeah. in there and I would just stand in front of work for hours 
What was your favorite piece in the museum? Oh. Or just. Uh, oh my gosh. Know, I love the Georgia O'Keeffe. Yeah. I love John Graham, cross eyed mm-hmm. woman mm-hmm. with a little doggy. I love the Picabias in that museum. Um, yeah. There's so, some really good ones. I mean, the Georgia O'Keeffe over the stairway with uh, huge clouds mm-hmm. is just so good. So, oh, and then, you know, I worked in the prints and drawings department, so I handled work for almost a year. That's great. Just, you, you could go into vaults. Yeah, you could see things that most people weren't seeing. Yeah, and the museum wasn't that big then. It, it got expanded, right. so not everything could be displayed. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot in storage, you know. There were amazing collections upon collections that were given to the museum. Yeah. Really good drawings. I mean, it's such a gift, right? Seeing that, being able to see that stuff. So I love Chicago. I love Chicago because of the way it looks, because it looks kind of like Philly. Yeah, working class, blue collar. Yeah, it's, it's gritty. It's gorgeous, you know, whether it's downtown and these massive, really cool buildings or like Wicker Park where I lived, mm-hmm. which is at that point was kind of like you know, Williamsburg 15 years yeah, ago. Just starting. The music scene's great. was amazing. Oh my gosh. At that time, you were actually maybe getting a little closer to the end, but you were in the heyday of some Chicago serious music going on. There. Well, there were a number of things. One, dancing was great in Chicago. I mm-hmm. love dancing. And you could go to like... There were so many great tiny bars, yeah. and it's so cold outside, and it's it's a very Chicago feeling where like you paint until like twelve, uh-huh. and then you call your friends. I don't think we texted then. You call your friends, and they're all in some tiny old bar, like packed in there. So you're so cold. You're walking to that bar, and then you get in, and it's super hot, hot and sweaty. And you take <laughs> off like ten hundred layers, and you're shoved into some little corner booth you know and yeah. then really good music starts and everybody just gets down you know? so what was your music was it more like dance because like, you know chicago has the history of like you know amazing blues and well, amazing blues but also you know the sort of like dance you know like trance and electronic music and then post-rock stuff was going on there there's a, a lot of different a lot of different genres. more reggae i think oh you were into reggae I don't know. I'm not into like um, electronic music that much. Mm-hmm. In excess, I love to dance to. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. Um, and David Bowie, that kind of thing. Like, Bom- are we talking like Kick? Remember that? Yes. Did you have the Did you have the cassette? <laughs> I don't know if I had the cassette, but that's a nice thought. I had it. Yeah? The NXS cassette. Because it had a skateboard on it. Oh. And like his, yeah. That was a big, you know, it's funny thinking back to my youth, like there were certain cassette tapes that were like big, you know, just visually they were. Well, you were, you were a DJ, so you're, you know, you have also like a, a yeah. fetishism to these yes, things. Yeah. For me, it's just about just the, the warmth of being in a crowd of people I like, yeah. not talking, right. and like getting Just down. Moving. Yeah, sweating it out. 
another place that was amazing but doesn't exist is a place called Lee's Unleaded Blues. Uh-huh. And it was on the south side. So I, ha- I had another great teacher, so another wave in my life at the mm-hmm. Art Institute where uh, um, I took a few semesters with a person called John Phillips who uh-huh. teaches at the Art Institute for a long time. And he is a huge record collector. So one night I called him and I was like, oh, I just have to go find a more authentic place to listen to blues than this average whatever where we've been going. And he said, okay, drive to the South Side with someone. He collects blues records and he knows all these guys Mm -hmm. from the South Side. So we drove to this place and it was just, you know, okay, first of all, people from the neighborhood come to sing the blues in their, sometimes in their pajamas. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's when it's authentic. <laughs> right? Like, oh, sorry, not pajamas, sweatpants, which right. like to a European man, mind, I mean, I, I can't, somebody going in public in sweatpants to me is mm-hmm. like, I just don't even understand it. Like well, I can't. It's, it's very in right now. <laughs> thanks to Alexander Wang and people like that. <laughs> Sorry, there are all kinds of issues. I mean, love fashion, but I can't, right, right. I, I just can't, okay? I've heard that before from, from, <laughs> from certain people. Yes. Um, so the idea of a blues musician showing up in their sweatpants, pulling out a harmonica and a guitar. But it was, unbe- you oh, know, I'm sure it was really dark, mm-hmm. all mirrors. Like, who, who knows what else went down there? But the music was just incredible. The real thing. The real thing. But then if you showed up there on Sunday, sometimes people were in Sunday clothes with hats I'll singing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, anyway, they closed that place, but it was really amazing. And at some point towards the end of Chicago, it would be like my friends and Japanese tourists. Cause, mm-hmm. And that's how you know also it's, it's good. good. Yeah. Right. Because they, they find out. They find out, and then how the f- how the fuck do they get to the south side? I mean, it's like oh yeah, they don't. They, you, it will be the most. I'm not saying the south side is dangerous. I don't know, but they, sometimes you'll be in the most dangerous area, and you'll just see <laughs> Japanese tourists rolling in. They don't care. They're just like no. I'm going out here to see this. I mean, a man had to. So there was a guy who every time we came there stood outside of this club told you where to park and mm-hmm. then for a few dollars watched your car oh yeah you so i'll keep an eye on it that was the kind of place this one <laughs> that's a good gig to, like i mean you know it's, it's yeah and definitely. you could not get food there really near it without like most places had bulletproof glass like you got your your food came like kind of rolled out through a window oh my gosh so so how did you i mean you're just into blues I'm just really into blues. I mean, we're talking about a young lady growing up in Russia at the ballet and now into the deep south side blues club with bulletproof glass and I'll watch a car for five minutes. I love the blues. I mean, When did you start getting into that? Probably because... Just Chicago? Of grad school, yeah. yeah. I, I had neighbors in grad school. Mm-hmm in the program yeah. who had very good music taste yeah that's and, good and you know there's no they're just curtains yeah it's like a, the, stu- the studios are not with doors right. so you, you hear, hear other music. people's and i mean i painted every night every day every night yeah. for three years so 
Do you listen to a lot of their music? Listen. Do you listen to the blues now when you paint? I do listen to the blues now, yes. That's mostly what I listen to in the studio. I mean, also a lot of Leonard Cohen mm-hmm. and a lot of Johnny Cash. Yeah, but that doesn't mean I also don't... I mean, it, it comes in waves. I also listen to some Russian music, mm-hmm. mostly like folk, Yeah. Russian folk. And I, I can sing, but only in Russian. I cannot sing in English. Um, now I kind of want to hear. No. You're not gonna. We'll have to. We'll have to be at a table someday. Okay. That's where the singing happens. Little karaoke somewhere. We have to eat together. Okay. That's where you sing. You sing and you eat. Um, yeah. So Chicago so, is great. And at that point, is your work kind of you're doing abstract painting? At that yeah. Point? And is it? coming into form or do you feel like this is still work you're trying to figure things out and you're just exploring I mean if we're going to talk about coming into form it probably it for sure happened in New York yeah and much more recently not not even in even the first two or three years of New York are pure experimentation now did you at the time did you feel that or did you feel like no no I'm I'm I feel really good about this work and it's very strong. Or do you feel like I'm just still kind of trying to find it? You know what I mean? I, th- I think we never really feel like we found it, but obviously it seems like today you're a little more confident and assured of what you're doing than when you were in grad school. Yeah, I don't think I... I, I you know, I don't know what I was thinking in the moment. I mean, I, I was definitely trying... I wish I was trying more different mm-hmm. things. But like I look back, I wish I was experimenting more wildly. Right. But everything happens at a time when it should. Yeah. You know, there were really good suggestions of professors and peers as to how to take my practice apart. And they were kind suggestions. Mm-hmm. It, it's not a place, I mean, I, I guess it depends on who you're studying with, but I wasn't... Uh, it wasn't suggested offensively or in a hurtful way. Right. But I just wasn't ready to fully fall apart. So I was experimenting uh, on a lower volume. Mm-hmm. And right now, in retrospect, it all looks... I get like how, how it builds to this work. Yeah. But it feels like uh, trying on different outfits, yeah. borrowing different languages. A lot of very what seems now very literal storytelling. Yeah. I had so much to say when I got to grad school. Like, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about this issue and that issue and all of it to be packed into my paintings. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, I always tell my students that one of my first advisor meetings, you have two advisors at the Art Institute every semester. Mm-hmm. And one of my advisors, who was also the head of the painting department at the time, Suzanne uh, DeRamus, mm-hmm said to me, well, these are really great stories, but first you really have to learn how to paint. She kind of recognized that you were trying to squeeze stuff in that you weren't visually sorting out yet. Yeah, like I, I didn't, my hand was behind my, my head. Yeah. And that all this that's in my head will be there anyways. So. Get the hand going and let them meet. 
right? Yes, <laughs> and they did not meet in school. But, you know. Well, some people, when they're working, it is, it's just the story of the hand, so it develops as it develops. It sounds like you had such a sort of um, a behind-the-scenes um, sort of conceptual or, you know, idea-based idea stuff that was pushing it, but then it's trickier because you have to have the technique and the, the process meet that complicated storyline that's going on behind it. So I would imagine... Only time can sort that out. Yeah, right? only time can sort it out. And you can't rush it. Yeah. And you have to be patient. And that's hard when you're young and you're a really passionate person. Like, yeah. I don't have a patient temperament, really, <laughs> at all. You know, so for me, I wanted that to speed up. But yeah. Do you work quick? Or did you at that point? No, I worked really slow. I mean, I mean... That's what I mean, that I wish I sort of like fell apart and experimented more. Yeah. But I made four or five paintings, very composed mm -hmm. paintings per semester. And then maybe eventually by year three, I got a bit looser, but pace is important mm -hmm. because you can get so many ideas out of your bloodstream and so many experiments that you can process so much faster. Yeah. So now the way I work is that I make, I have a lot of ideas going at the same time. Yeah. It's, it's important to me. But it's like a concert. It's like a concert. I don't even know. I'm just picturing <laughs> in the short amount of time we're talking, I could just imagine that it's this orchestra coming together, <laughs> you know, between all those ideas and thoughts and then all these colors and different ways of making. And you all, you're also busy in other aspects of your life too, right? You're doing other things. I you're do other things. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're orchestrating a lot. I think I, I guess I like that. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, I had to come to terms with the fact that I actually feed off of the fact that it's a kind of storm. Yeah. You know, and some aspects of the storm get highlighted. And, like, there are different seasons for things, yeah. you know? And when I walk into the studio, you know, three paintings out of 15 will speak to me and will call out and say, oh, I need your help today and mm -hmm. I will help them. Yeah, and by ideas, we really mean emotions, I think. Yeah. Is, it, is, it, is the work that you're working on now exploratory in nature or do you have like sketches and sort of ideas beforehand? It is completely discovered or m almost completely discovered in the process it's I make, improvisational basically it's, yeah I mean I make drawings but very basic ones I, I really like sketch a feeling like okay I just I'm, I want them to feel the next 10 to feel this way yeah and they're very basic line drawings and I can't really make outside of the studios like while I was in Buenos Aires for two weeks recently. Mm -hmm. I made a few drawings just like a starting points for what's going to happen when I come back. I and don't, you let it take shape. And then they brew. The process. Yeah. And I just trust. So that's, that's the difference between the way I worked in grad school is that I was... I had an idea and then I had plan for that idea and then I carried it out 
now I just trust that this feeling will be communicated by the work. And, yeah. and so I let them brew, and some of them brew for you know months, some of them are years, and some are a few weeks. And then I just keep on tuning them. Yeah. It's funny because when I was first thinking about your music that you talked about enjoying in relation to, because I do that in my mm-hmm. mind, and think about paintings musically, and, and I was thinking, well, these are kind of like improv. They're, they feel jazzy, like improvisational. Like you're, there's different tones and textures, but you're, you're changing it up, and it's, it feels like you're making those decisions in relation to each other, kind of like someone is doing a solo in a jazz song is, mm. is kind of feeling that but then I thought in the other music like blues is a structured music I mean it's pretty you know mm-hmm. ABAB you know what I mean it's the blues mm-hmm. and um, someone like you know Johnny Cash or Lenny Cohen it's, it's kind of like a very organized song it's not it's not kind of breaking apart another thing one common thread between that music is that it's very lyrical and I do think that these are very lyrical and so the interesting thing about the stories that are going on, I guess maybe that comes across, across visually to me in a lyrical play in the paintings mm. that maybe those songs have. Mm. You know what I mean? That's nice. Do you feel that like that is, there is almost like a lyrical song being told in these, in a way? Yeah, I hope not, so. Not literally, but through the process yeah. and through, they seem to have characters in whether it's a shape whether it's a color or line it it there's feels like a time and then this relationship between things and then there's a a lyric quality to the technique because you're using materials that are kind of ham-fisted or cheap in some way sometimes like cheap yeah. stretchers or cheap little pieces of wood <laughs> yeah. but you're creating something a lot greater out of that you know what i mean like there is a process of transformation yeah and there's something lyrical about that, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a nice, nice way of it's putting it. It's not too it. far. It's no, not too far I don't off. think so. Okay, I that's... don't think so. But I also, you know, I listen to the, these um, singers because mm-hmm. there's like a humanity to the story it's being emotional. told. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're very emotional. I mean, whether Johnny Cash or an old blues song, you know, someone like Skip James or something. That that's so emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are your paintings emo? Do you feel like they're emotional paintings? <laughs> sure, yeah. I'm, I'm very unembarrassed of being emotional. But, you know, sometimes they're a little bit composed, like they're, they were feeling emotional, but they hit it or buttoned up. Uh-huh. And sometimes they're like... Isn't that loose? Yeah. Yeah. You know, they go in and out of control. And is it something that each well you said you made sketches that you're kind of loosely planning out a group of work excuse me do you um do you have that all the time are you adapting to things like will you make something a move in one of these paintings that will go off and spin off into a whole new group whether it's material or whether it's just you know color relationships or yeah they feed each other and but sometimes also like i let's say i I thought about it as a group. I made one. Mm-hmm. And then that satisfied it. Yeah. I'm okay to move. It's a really open process, yeah. you know? So, yeah, sometimes I thought 10 need to say that whatever it is, but right. one said it. Yeah. 
You better know? than the rest. Yeah. Good. So yeah. that's it. And there's also a lot of just experimentation with material, mm-hmm. you know, and that brings me joy. Yeah. So outside of, um, you know, the music we talked about, what are some of your other influences? I mean, as far as artwork is concerned, there are artists that you, I mean, I'm sure you love a lot of art. I love a lot of art. Are there people in your studio in your mind more than, more than others? Um, wow. Good question. Well, okay, I went to the Outsider Art Fair yesterday. Uh-huh. They were like... 50 things I wanted. I can imagine, yeah. There was so much amazing art. I mean, there were G's bent quilts that Those are, are incredible. Guys. Yeah. Really good Indian miniatures and Tantra paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like, in the same booth as the Indian miniatures, there were... I don't know what kind of text this were, but they were handwritten with tiny drawings next to them. Next mm. to them, I love when I've been thinking a lot about text and painting, yeah. and so that really touched me. But uh, I just went and saw an amazing film about Elizabeth Murray, and yeah. now for the past week, she's been really on my mind. Yeah. In that film, she talked a lot about the Art Institute, so I felt this kind of connection connection because of that. And also, again, like life and art. I mean, there were so many good friends of hers in the film who talk in incredible ways about her. Mm-hmm. Just the way that she was able to be a good human being and an artist simultaneously. Yeah. That, that's really important. But also the way she was able to like have it all, like have a family Yeah. successfully, three kids, and a painting career. You know, no matter what some artists say, you can, you yeah. can have kids and still have a career. So that, was a, that has been on my mind. Um, and I, I um, have an, a catalog of her work from the 70s, and mm-hmm. there are some paintings that are so interesting that lead up to the shaped canvases yeah that have that kind of meatiness still mm-hmm. but there aren't really shapes in them there's just line so good yeah don't you love that it's such a gift to like look back at an artist whose work you know because oh well, i've seen this work in museums and i'm kind of familiar with this artist and then you see a show like that or a catalog like that and you're like oh my god there's so much other stuff like the stella show at the Whitney I mean there was so much stuff in there and you know that he's done a lot of different things but being able to see that early work like the things that lead up to it is so exciting yeah so that was that, that those are just been... two you know this is just the past week but also Carmen Herrera yeah amazing amazing that was a really good show um, and how I, d- I didn't know her work until fairly recently no idea I show that film in my classes uh-huh. a lot because it's, I mean, it's a sad story because yeah. it took her this long, but her attitude in it is like she's not an embittered human being and her commitment to art just remains. And her partner was so amazing, mm-hmm. like openly and secretly supporting her. <laughs> yeah. So 
in my art history classes, I always show that film, even though a lot of the people who are taking my classes aren't becoming art historians, like they're nurses taking the art history class. But it's such a story of hope and commitment. Determination. So many of my students are, you know, immigrants or they're first generation in college. They, They love it. Like, yeah. it's one of their first, uh, one of their favorite films to encounter. Yeah, well, those kind of stories transcend the medium. You know, it's kind mm-hmm. of a life story of, you know, that, that kind of um, marathon, so to speak, of commitment can be applied to any area, I think, you know. And the difficulties and the roadblocks sometimes or how hard it is to, to maintain and withstand and just keep doing what you're doing. Sometimes the forces are aligned against you, but those who really are committed can can make some amazing things happen and it's like i said it's just, it's so crazy that it took me so long to even know that work you know yeah same you know but the, i i think about human qualities and that a lot like the her sense of humor which remains mm-hmm. and it's not like a pokey bitter sense yeah. of humor it's like a really okay this could have happened earlier but you know yeah. like kind and funny and with Elizabeth Murray there is this sense of generosity Mm -hmm. towards others yeah like how how do you remain a human being and an artist (laughs) that's a good (laughs) question yeah well you've done a lot of the one thing I want to talk about too is that your involvement with starting a gallery how did Mm. that happen because that's kind of was that a supporting other artists sort of you know a way to kind of create that community and and um so with Regina Rex the way it happened is that again like when I moved to New York I really didn't know artists yeah so you know except for your friend in the U-Haul except (laughs) for my friend in the U-Haul but I do have to say she decided not to stay in New York after a year Mm -hmm. so a year later it was like just you just me right so I really wanted to meet more people and there is this kind of one I um, you know Chicago has a whole history of running galleries from apartments Mm -hmm. artists running galleries from their apartments yeah so I actually did something like that in Chicago for mm-hmm. the last few months of me being there. I co-curated a few shows of professors that I had and students together. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved here, the invisibility, like you might have a lot to say, you might think you are decently interesting human being but like you go to openings and you're just like no one right it's a daunting feeling especially if you didn't go to grad school here so I remember myself saying out loud to whoever I would meet like oh I would love to run a space together yeah and I just kept on putting it out into the universe in one day at the end of my second year of living in New York an acquaintance of mine called and said, you know, we have this space, raw space. Or someone has this raw space in Bushwick on yeah. Jefferson Stop, and there is a first meeting about potentially building it out to be a gallery. Do you want to come to this meeting? And the meeting was really large, and the only person in that room that I knew was her. Mm-hmm. And 
it was just a raw space on what street were we on gosh now Troutman. we're in Troutman yeah. thank you 1414 right so crazy 1717 I just 17, forgot 17, yeah like walking there every fucking day for four and a half years and I forgot the street name. Just erase that out of your mouth. Wow. It was just because we we're on the Lower East Side and I just completely forgot our address. Crazy. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, that was the first meeting and we talked about what it would take just totally abstractly. Yeah. And it was Maine. We were in t-shirts and, and the, the next meeting was announced and mm-hmm. it sounded like, you know, you're going to have to pay a certain amount per month and you're gonna have to come and build what like it sounded like labor yeah and so to the next meeting 13 people so 12 (laughs) people showed up and those 12 including me started the space so it was just by the it was just by the sheer like number of people who wanted to work right and who wanted this extra project besides you know surviving in the city and having their own practice and yeah and we built it out, mm-hmm. and a month later, we opened our first show, and it was June mm-hmm. 2010. Shortly after that, I moved to the stop, the Jefferson stop, uh-huh. and so did most of us. Mm-hmm. So the way we thought about this project is that we didn't, we had no idea, for example, that it would live for seven years, right? Yeah. Or that... You know, so many incredible things have happened or that we would do art fairs or that we would even sell a piece of art. Yeah. I mean, it's just a labor of love and it had to do with the fact that, you know, we wanted a space to talk about art, to show other artists, to not show ourselves. Mm-hmm. And just like I said, you know, if you go to openings and you stand around and you're sort of and nobody will hear it gives you a venue to invite people into your space and yeah. as a result for example when you ask for studio visits when you're running a space well you can reach out to some people you really respect who you right. thought were unreachable and say hey I run the space can I enter your life and yeah. talk to you about art a bit yeah um, so it's it, it it's this project that empowers others, but also empowers you to be able to kind of educate yourself. Yeah, and a lot of it, I think, is about communicating too, right? Because when you're communicating with other people and you're making those connections, that's such an important part of, of being an artist, you know? It's like that discussion. And sometimes mm-hmm. you have to bring the discussion to you. It's not just right. sitting around hoping that a big gallery will come and show your work and then your work will be discussed by everyone. And that's not even as rewarding as doing it yourself anyways and meeting people and chatting about their work. And, you know, I think that's what all artists really do is you get a core group of people that you try to just find that pocket of people that, you know, you can visit each other's studios and support each other. And, you know, and I think, you know, doing something like that is nice because you have that community, but at the same time, you're also inviting others in who might not know or be in that community to come check it out and it just grows mm-hmm. and grows it grows and i mean it becomes a really large network because you worked with someone you thought they were really exciting and then you say hey you have three people you're looking at who you know who are working i don't know somewhere in the bronx or in the depth of queens mm-hmm. in their living room well how else would you find out about them so then you go visit those people and you know like I said, there's stages, right? Today, 
I do less studio visits. I primarily go to friends' studios to an yeah. established group of people and friends, and then sometimes some outliers, right? Right. But then I went to every studio I was allowed into. Mm-hmm. I mean, like hundreds yeah. of them, right? Just because all of a sudden it was possible. Right. And not only is there that core group of people who started Regina Rex, but that is how I also chose my friends. I would go to studio visit someone in relation to some exhibition and then realize, oh my gosh, I really want this person in my life, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's not just that immediate community of Regina. The Regina Rex community is larger than mm-hmm. and it's people we've shown, people we've collaborated with. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, it's kind of um, willing who you want to be near you. Yeah. You know? And so you guys, when did you get, did you get pinched out and have to move somewhere else? Basically, yeah. There was a whole... It's fairly recently, right? Two and a half years yeah. ago, I think, now. Oh, time flies. That felt like yesterday. No. Yeah. <laughs> two and a half <laughs> two years. Two and a half years ago. Oh, boy. That's why I don't remember the address. <laughs> um, yeah, and then we moved to the Lower East Side, which, you know, is a kind of different situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in the basic way of the public can just walk in off the street. Like, yeah. when I used to gallery sit Regina Rex on Troutman... In the first three years, it was obvious that someone took the subway, mm-hmm. walked up Troutman, Came which was completely you, yeah. vacant except right. for one um, wine shop or mm-hmm. wine bar. And then you pass that, you walk to, to the building, you go to the third floor, and I'm it's a sitting there. Gallery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a destination. And thing. no one's like just passing by and like, oh, look at that show. Right. That makes a big difference, too. It it's, makes a big it, difference. It does. Because there's so many. You know, I noticed that having a show, I've had shows on the first floor of a gallery and then I've had shows on the 20th floor of a gallery and it makes a big difference because it's so nice whenever people just bump into your show, walk in and love mm-hmm. it, you know, or, or really into it. And there's a lot of people that find your work that way that, yeah. you know, they, they don't want the sort of secret map on how to get to the space. <laughs> so I guess there's something nice about probably of spearheading that space in the community of artists because that's so tight. But at the same time, I guess if you are going to move, the one nice thing is you're introducing all those people to a whole new group of, of eyes. I mean, if we, you know, the reality is we were thinking of maybe staying in Bushwick, but then would mean to take on... You know, to somehow up the project, mm-hmm. maybe rent something bigger, maybe have a bookstore within the gallery. I mean, we brainstormed all kinds of ideas, but it was impossible to sign a lease in the same community where we started. I mean, we spent about six months, some members more involved into the search than others. Some literally, you know, met with real estate agents yeah. every other day. I mean, it was really a job. And we couldn't do it. We couldn't actually remain in this neighborhood. It was impossible. So going into the city was easier. So right. that's part of the reason we ended up there. But, yeah, it's, there are neighborhood people who walk into the gallery. You know, sometimes I'm galleries, like I'm gallery sitting tomorrow. And mm-hmm. every time I gallery sit, there's like some kid from across the street who right. just comes into, See or some grandma up. comes in to talk to me, you yeah. know? That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So it's definitely been an, uh, an incredible project that keeps on giving. Yeah, that's great. 
and it's such a respected um, space for so many younger artists, well, so many people, you know, who've gone, especially from the days of, of starting out in Bushwick, you know, and, that, and those were the times when it wasn't as easy, or not easy, but, you know, Bushwick was different just that short amount of time ago. One story that I've told before is that, you know, during our first openings, like because there was literally nowhere to go eat Mm -hmm. except for Northeast Kingdom, which was really great, but now is also gone, that we actually bought tamales like in mass so we could serve them at the opening because like it was such a destination space that like you had to feed your guests. Like, did you get them on Star Street? Probably, yeah, maybe. This is amazing. Yeah, and that didn't have a restaurant either. It had just that side street. Just the factory part. Yeah, yeah. So you know, with Bushwick, I get to be like a grandma. I get to say like, (laughs) on this corner, there used to be da da da. You know. (laughs) Did you ever see the Saturday Night Live skit where they're in Bushwick? No. I'll show it to you later. (laughs) It's, It's good. Is it funny? It's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, it's changed. Yeah, I remember the first time when I first moved after grad school down to the city, a couple guys that I played music with were in that 1717, and we would practice music there, and it was a lot different than it is now. I mean, just walking over there was a little sketchy, you know, it had a much different vibe to it, but it felt like the Wild West, like you could go get a space for cheap. Yeah. Not so much anymore. Not so much anymore. And the first summer, we threw an incredible dance party on that porch. Like, we rented speakers uh-huh. and oh, just sh- danced looking at the city, yeah. you know? Yeah. We had a great porch that was just available. Like, now I think they lock it because of the danger, because people right. have children, and your yeah. child might fall through the boards. Blah, blah. But, yeah. like, in 2010, we just, like, danced on that roof. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I only have seen one neighborhood go, like, through the whole entire transformation. So I get to kind of not complain, but just remember. Well, it's part of, you know, like the tenure of being in New York. Yeah, part of being a witness to it. You've earned your stripes when you can start complaining about how the neighborhood's changed. (laughs) (laughs) So when did you first move to Williamsburg? What year was that? 2008. And did you live in over by Bedford? Were you towards the water or were you further out? I lived a year on uh, Barinquin, mm-hmm. Mortimer Stop. Yeah, south side. And then a year on South 4th and Barry. Yeah. Also, I mean, South 4th and Barry, you know, I like took phone calls outside. Like I would pace on Kent and uh-huh. Kent was dark. I mean, yeah. That kind of thing. But then a club opened, and then another club, and then we couldn't sleep in our apartment, and then Regina Rex started, so I was like, fuck this. Out of here. I love to sleep, so. Sleeping's nice. Yeah, when I first, I first visited when I was a student at Penn State, and I think that was 93 or something, and visited this guy's apartment, which was right next to Williamsburg Bridge. Mm-hmm. And I swear there was tumbleweed rolling through down Broadway. <laughs> like, there was nothing there. <laughs> it was totally empty. Yeah. And it felt like it's, it's hard to imagine how much it's changed. But So that's, you know, Williamsburg was just two years. So I saw the very end of that yeah. situation. But I'm still, 
you know, I, I'm nostalgic when I go there. Like, I once a month, I enjoy meeting a friend there for coffee and walking. And to me, it's like, a, you know, it's an important time. I was the beginning of being here. I don't just get grossed out by it. I yeah. have other feelings. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I feel the same way. I still go down there all the time. So <laughs> it's it's nice. And, and, you know, it's funny how when you have kids or a kid, you know, it your ideas on the neighborhood cleaning up change a little bit. You're like, this isn't so bad. <laughs> right. You know? Of course. Yeah. Totally. It kind of changes your perspective on things a little bit. So what are you, uh, what are you working on now? What's coming up for you? Um, what am I working on now? Well, I am going to have work with Nikel in a, um, in the curated part of the Buenos Aires art fair in May. That sounds nice. And so I'm working on work towards that booth. Did you love it there when you went? Or was it? Uh, how how was it? You know, it's first and foremost, it's really far. Further than you would imagine, right? Further than I imagined. Yeah. So, it is really beautiful, enormous, enormous, yeah. like unexpectedly huge. I I don't know what I thought, but it's like it's like vast. it's it feels like Mexico City or something. Yeah. Um very European looking mm -hmm. but with like wild elements like for example when you go to a cemetery there like the, the famous <laughs> happened. I always go to cemeteries to every in every place I travel to I guess I do it everywhere I go if I can first stop um, first stop yeah I anyway Buenos Aires is very interesting you. I think it's if Tel Aviv had sex with uh, Mexico City, Buenos Aires this was born. Yes, that's how it looks. <laughs> that's a perfect description. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but that just sounds perfect. <laughs> so you have a show coming up there? So I have, a, if I'm in a fair there, and so yes, so I'm making work towards that. Um, yeah, and just... Making new stuff. Just making new stuff. You know, I had a solo show in September, and I, you know, it took me a year to make that work. And so this is kind of post-exhibition. That new thing, that thing that you do after having a show where you decompress and you just start back up and mm -hmm. let things happen, right? Yeah, exactly. That's great. Exactly. Cool. So I will not be going to Buenos Aires for that. I actually, you know, vacationed and saw it and You're just ready. the work yeah, will yeah. be traveling. That's it. You don't have to go back for it. <laughs> it. It's a bit far and I think that, you know, it, I should have combined it with, with nature, like going to Chile or yeah. Uruguay. But I just walk the city nine hours a day. Yeah. My own fault for planning it like uh, in a wacky way. <laughs> You know, the other thing I have to say is that they make culture happen on virtually no funds yeah. everywhere. Yeah. So I have two separate guy friends who both run cultural centers mm -hmm. with friends. Like they rented old Buenos Aires buildings and for years run them as you know, concert venues, yeah. film screening venues. So it, it's kind of like New York where on every given day you can do something it's vibrant. Yeah. Like, I feel and like they only start their life at like 10.30 p.m. Yeah. 
So you have to have stamina like no other. It sounds like a great place for me to go when I was 20. <laughs> yeah, I didn't party that much, but mm-hmm. I did go see tango in the middle of the night. That and sounds nice. You can still do it as an old person. Yeah. No, I just think I would probably squeeze a little more out of the experience at a younger age. Now you can go see a cemetery, <laughs> see, some, see some museums. See, see some open mausoleums. You see some open mausoleums, uh, eat some meat, if you like. I'm vegetarian. Me too. That, that was the fucking problem. Yeah, that's not a good look for... And yeah, it's, you're a vegetarian too? I kind of don't... Yeah, I'm a pescatarian. But still, there's there's cultures that if you don't eat meat, it's a real, like, what's wrong with you? Yeah, you're just eating a lot of pasta because yeah. they're all part. They're mostly part Italian, mm-hmm. so it's tough. Yeah, you come back filled with wheat. <laughs> it's not a gluten-free situation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have to go someday. Totally, take your son hiking there. That's what I would suggest. That sounds nice. They have like 1,000 types of nature in one country. And lots of hills. Lots of hills. Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for letting me come check out your work. It was so nice to meet you. Thank you. To talk. And everyone should see your work at your website, mm-hmm. which is your name, which I don't, I'm not going to spell it out. No. You want me to? Or people, people, people will see can, it typed. People can. It's very long. Yeah. People will find you. (laughs) People will find you. Thank you for coming. Thanks so much for having me. You can find images of the artist's work, studios, and exhibitions on the podcast website, soundandvisionpodcast.com. The introduction, narration, and music was provided by Michael Lovett of Nazca Lines. All other music was made by Lullatone, based out of Nagoya, Japan. Sound and Vision is produced, edited, recorded, and organized by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find more about my work at paintchanger.com. Thanks for listening.